Let us go to the Lord in prayer together. Master, we ask that you will empty our minds and hearts of all distractions. Our world is filled with massive amounts of information. It seems to race forward at a frenetic pace with continual, even unrelenting change. Lord, enable us in these moments to disconnect from all those things We pray that only you will fill our thoughts and our desires. That you would tune our ears, our minds, our hearts to hear you clearly. Eliminate the static, the white noise surrounding us right now. I pray that you will speak to us through your word and your spirit. Father, I am a deeply broken and flawed individual. Cracked, useless, clay pot. I have nothing to bring to these people unless you fill me with your light. Our time together is too important. It's too valuable to squander. So I plead with you to make your light shine. That you would make this pot disappear. That the light will expose darkness. That the light will give hope and life, that the light will warm our desperate hearts, and that the light will guide our steps through this daunting world, and that the light will bring us all the way home to your eternal presence. I'm confident that you will answer with power and grace and glory. Make yourself to shine through this body of believers. Here in this place, in this community we call Milton, radiate your glory in us and through us, even to the farthest corners of this world. And I pray that you will call lost souls out of the darkness today, that you will show them your light and draw them to yourself. We pray that you would do it for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 8. We're not going to get through the entire passage that Mark just read for you. I am wise enough to have realized that we were overzealous in plotting that text. So don't panic when we seem to be creeping along a little bit slower than you might anticipate. This passage, as we think about it this morning, I want to take us back to one of the feasts that was common to the Israelites, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's described in Leviticus 23, and it commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt and the subsequent wanderings through the wilderness. In Jesus' day, there in Jerusalem, there were four huge menorahs. Uh, in the temple area. And those menorahs were uh, quite, quite extraordinary. They uh, were like giant candlesticks extending up into the air. Some, some people say 75 feet, others say more than 100 feet. And they each had four bowls. They were like candelabras, if you will. 
and they were, those cauldrons were filled with oil, and it had to be done every day, some 65 liters of oil in those cauldrons, so you get an idea of just how large they were. And they would take, the priests would take old clothing and turn it into wicks, and they would put it in the cauldron of oil, and then in the evening, they would light those candelabra. And so it literally not only would light up the temple area, but would light up the entire city of Jerusalem. Now, it was designed to remind the people of God as the pillar of fire leading his people through the darkness in the wilderness. And so that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. One morning, while the torches were not lit, you may remember John giving us an account of Jesus who appeared there. And uh, he, as looking up at those torches that were cold and charred and darkened, Jesus proclaimed over the crowd that day, he said, I am the light of the world. Now, the significance was clear for anyone that was paying attention. He was claiming to be God. The pillar of fire in the wilderness, essentially, Jesus said, is me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. Now, Paul's pointing to this, or at least connecting to this imagery here in this passage of Scripture. In the previous passage, he's delivered some weighty truth. He challenged their thoughts. He challenged their speech. He challenged their actions. Now, when we're confronted with God's Word, it's very easy for us to experience shame. We feel guilt. We know that we're not living up to the expectation that God has for us. We feel even sometimes uh, a desire to resist against God's will. Our pride consumes us and won't let us put down our walls and embrace what God has said. We're prone to think, that no one can do what God is asking. And that's exactly right. We can't. No one can truly reflect God's glory. It's impossible. It's unrealistic. And the feeling is we should just give up and give in to the world's way. But Paul says, I'll have none of that. He says, things are much better than you think. Don't become partners with idolaters, these sons of disobedience. Listen. You have been fundamentally changed. You once were darkness, but now you are light. The light that Christ proclaimed himself to be is in you. It is you. You are in the light, from darkness to light. So Paul understood this transformation clearly, personally. I'll take you back to Acts chapter 26 as he's sharing his own personal testimony. Listen to what he says. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, listen, 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Also in Acts 13, Paul, recounting again God's desire for him, said that God has instructed him, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. If you are in Christ, you believe the gospel, you have repented of sin, and you are trusting in his finished work, you're no longer in darkness, you're in light, the light of Christ. Now Paul explains here the implications behind this reality. What does this mean for us? Can we live up to God's expectations? I think so. Paul thinks so, and he instructs us in this manner. First of all, he says, if we are children of light, then we should reflect the light. We should bear resemblance to the light. The light should be visible in us. You were at one time darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Darkness is not a thing, is it? Dictionaries tell us that darkness is merely the absence of something. It's the absence of light. Darkness in Scripture symbolizes Satan's evil domain. The absence of truth, the absence of virtue, the absence of holiness and righteousness. It portrays the sinful deeds of those who do not obey God. It is spiritual ignorance of those who, who have sin blinding their hearts, their spirit, their soul. Listen to how Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 59, 9 through 10. Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It seems that God has arranged for all of us this morning to be on cue as from 1 John 5 that has already been shared with you this morning. This is what the Apostle John wrote. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what does it mean that God is light? I mean, we understand what light means for us. It's energy, right? It's energy. It's, I can't explain it to you. You know, I went and looked up some definitions, but I can't explain it to you. But we recognize it, right? And we know when there is no light. But we're thinking spiritually here. It is the truth of God. It is, it is God making himself known. It is the very essence of who God is. He is light. 
1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Truth is treated in a synonymous fashion with light. 1 John 5, 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, how does light fit into Paul's letter to the Ephesians? One time you were darkness, without light. Light was absent. When? When you were apart from Christ. But now you are light in the Lord. I was thinking this week, studying this passage, and I looked around my office surroundings. I looked around my home surroundings. I made it a point to observe. And in my home, in my office, there are objects in there. There are, there are things that we call lamps. In my garage, I have a lantern. I have flashlights. But those things in and of themselves are not light, are they? They, they are projectors, if we will. They contain light, but there is something else that has to take place before the light appears. Much like us, we are built to be containers, vessels for God's light. But unless God dwells within us, unless it is His light within us, there is no hope for light being sent forth. Paul says in his testimony from Acts 26 that I just read, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Nathan read John 3, 16 through 19. For God so loved the world. We know that verse, right? But it goes on to say, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Before God broke in, we were all trapped in darkness. But He did not leave us in darkness. Like a cold night, if you've had the opportunity to stay up through the night in the darkness. Maybe you've been out somewhere, maybe even lost out somewhere, and it's cold and it's dark and it prompts some sort of fear and concern in your heart. And they say, and I think this is true, that it's always darkest before the dawn. But the dawn comes and light breaks into the dawn and suddenly turns from darkness into day. Zechariah had a picture of this. In his prophecy, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, we hear him say, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Christ, we reject the sinful lifestyle described in the preceding text that Paul has written to the Ephesians. We have undergone this identity change. We once were darkness, but now we're light. And he exhorts his readers to walk or to live as children of light, to bear their identity outwardly. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness, all righteousness, and truth. In other words, the ethical actions of those who live in God's light results in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Jesus spoke to this in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he said, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we're told, we're communicated these things through fruits of the Spirit, that there will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control for those who are in the light. God's light invites, illuminates, and sends us out. Again, John 3, 20, 21, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So walking in the light does something else. In John 3.20, as we just read, the light exposes the works of darkness. Paul states it here in Ephesians 5.11. Take no part in the works of darkness, but expose them, he says. We're to reflect the light, and we're also to expose the darkness. The light enables us to see what we could not see before. It reveals to us what we couldn't experience before. Anytime you've experienced total darkness, I mean real darkness, you know how oppressive and disconcerting it is. It feels suffocating, does it not? You've been to one of those places where you can wave your hand before your face and you can't see anything? Total, complete darkness. Even the faintest light there can radically change everything. In my house... Like most of all of you, I have steps in my house. I have a love-hate relationship with those steps because I've had occasion to take a tumble down those steps in the middle of the night. I don't know what it is about the brain that we think we don't need to turn the light on when we go down the steps in the middle of the night. But I think I've been up and down these steps thousands of times, right? So my feet know where they're going. My eyes don't have to wake up. And sometimes I miscalculate or subconsciously forget which step I'm on, misstep, and lose my balance. One night I fell just almost all the way down those steps and had a computer with me, and it went before me, preparing the way. Both of us survived, but it was close. But we have a nightlight in that hallway above those steps, and when that nightlight's on, it's all the difference in the world. It's a faint light. It's a small light. But even that light can make a huge difference in the darkness. Our physical sight hinges, I've noticed, on five, a five-step process. Light is at the core of our ability to see. Light enters the eye through the cornea. So when we open our eyes and look at an object, there's light being reflected off those objects. Off you right now, as I see you, there's light being reflected through the cornea of my eye. The pupil adjusts in response to the light. The lens focuses the light, bends the light onto the retina. The light is focused onto the retina's photosensors, photoreceptors. The optic nerve transmits the visual information to the brain. And so without light, we have no sight. No light, no sight. Spiritual light is truth, God's truth, God's word, a lamp unto my feet, the psalmist wrote, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, that I may not sin against God. 
We have no light of our own. We're like the moon. We're dead. We're cold. We're lifeless. We're dark. But when we're in proper alignment with God, just like the moon in proper alignment with the sun, it lights up enough that it can literally almost turn the night into day. Take no part, he says. Do not partner with unfruitful works of darkness. He's already warned us about this, right? Now he takes it a step further. But expose them. How do we do this practically speaking? How are we to expose darkness? We can confront those who perpetuate the works of darkness. And I certainly believe we have a responsibility at the proper time to do those things. And I certainly believe we, uh, we should act in an ethical fashion according to our faith and according to God's word, which also exposes the deeds of darkness. J.B. Phillips translates these verses this way. He says, live then as children of the light. The light produces in men quite the opposite of sins like these. Everything that is wholesome and good and true. Let your lives be living proofs of the things which please God. Steer clear of the activities of darkness. Let your lives show by contrast how dreary and futile these things are. You know the sort of things I mean. To detail their secret things is really too shameful. For light is capable of showing up everything for what it really is. It is, it is even possible, after all, it happened with you. For light to turn the thing, it shines upon into light also. Reminds me of a story I read or heard once upon a time about Billy Graham playing golf with three professional golfers. One was a friend of his, the other two were not. And after the round was over, someone asked one of the golfers that was not his friend how he liked playing golf with Mr. Graham, and he was very hostile about it. He said, I don't need that guy driving his faith down my throat all the time. Well, they asked Billy's friend about it, and he said, Billy never said a word about his faith. Not one word. We played golf, we fellowshiped, and that was it. So this guy living, walking with the Lord, the light itself brought conviction, brought challenges to the way he was living his life, even without a word being said. In Scripture here, he quotes, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In other words, Christ will give you light. He will make His light to shine upon you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. You can't send your life up on one of those tall candelabra. You can't project yourself 100 feet in the air, but God can use you in ways that you can't even anticipate as a bearer of his light. In the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Examine your heart and mind and your motives by God's truth. Remember that your purpose is to be light that directs others to Christ. Subject friends associate to God's light even exposing the darkness. I'm not saying that it should always be without words, 
But I'm saying that it doesn't always have to include words. By simply living a life that is devoted to walking in the light. In the recent documentary titled Light on Earth, David Attenborough tells of an unbelievable experience on the SS Lima. On January 25, 1995, as this British merchant vessel sailed the waters of the northwestern Indian Ocean, the seas beneath them began to glow. On a clear and moonless night, while 150 miles east of the Somalian coast, a whitish glow was observed on the horizon. After 15 minutes of steaming, the ship was completely surrounded by a sea of a milky white color. This was a fairly uniform luminescence. It appeared as though the ship was sailing over a field of snow or gliding over clouds. Now, there have been countless stories through the years about maritime folklore where the sailors have noted some sort of luminescence in the ocean, a white color ocean, but no one had ever followed up or been able to prove it scientifically. Using a defense meteorological satellite, Dr. Stephen Haddock and his team discovered a large luminescent area, roughly the size of Connecticut. The phenomenon was identified in the exact area where the captain had reported his ship that night. Marine biologists discovered that the glowing sea was caused by massive swarms of bioluminescent bacteria feeding on a large population of algae. Now think about that for just a moment. Bacteria are microscopic, but when they congregate together, these tiny creatures that cannot be seen with the naked eye can suddenly radiate their light 600 miles into orbit. What an incredible picture of the church. Alone, each of us is very small on this planet with 8 billion people. Can I really make much of a difference, you ask? Can I really project much light into this world? Or am I just a faint, very faint, almost invisible portion of that light? Well, first of all, I'd be very careful about minimizing your individual impact because that's up to God, right? Nothing's impossible with God. But our illustration clearly shows how powerful the church is in the world. As we are together in Christ, His light, we become a city on a hill, and the light cannot be hidden. So how should we apply this this morning? Well, the first question is, are you light? Are you light? Do you believe the gospel? Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your trust in Christ's finished work on the cross and His victorious resurrection? If not, I implore you to consider God's good news today. All humanity enters this world as sinners. All are lost apart from Christ. And the penalty for our sin is death, everlasting darkness and separation from a holy God. Christ Jesus fulfilled the law for you, and He died in place of you on the cross to pay the penalty, to satisfy God's wrath for your sin. He arose from the dead that He might give you everlasting life. Believe the gospel, repent of your sin, and trust in Christ's work. 
Are you walking as children of light? Or do you find yourself dabbling too much, too closely to the darkness? Are you awake or asleep spiritually? Are you daily living as a faithful light bearer? Are you exposing darkness in your own life and in the world in which you live? If darkness is dimming and hiding your light, you should bring it to the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. Turn it over to the Lord. Move away from the darkness. You have no, you have no familiarity there. You have no reason to continue to be there. Confess, confess and repent of it. Ask the Lord to empower you to be the light that He has called you and saved you to be. One important way that we remind ourselves to be light in this world is through coming to the Lord's table to observe the Lord's Supper together. It's a meal of bread and wine commemorating Christ's death and our relationship with Him. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a regular opportunity for self-examination. Paul instructs us to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. This is an appropriate time for each of us to do this, to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to know are we truly in the faith, truly walking in fellowship with Christ. It's also an opportunity for us to check our relationship with the church, our relationships in the church. Are you harboring unhealthy attitudes? Have there been actions that shouldn't have occurred between you and another member? Are you responsible before the Lord? You are responsible before the Lord to reconcile, to restore those relationships, to restore and guard unity in the body of Christ. We can't project much light if we're apart from one another, only as we come together in Christ. The Lord's Supper is also a powerful and effective reminder of our forgiveness. Christ shed His blood to cover our sin. As we heard earlier, as our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west, so it is in Christ Jesus. And this is the only sufficient path to true forgiveness through His blood. There's nothing else we can do, no other amount of penance that you can do to gain God's forgiveness only through Christ. The Lord's Supper is also a reminder of the temporal nature of the physical and a reminder of the everlasting nature of the eternal. Man shall not live by bread alone, we're told, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Lord's Supper reminds us of this, that these elements that we hold to in this world are but temporal. This body is but temporal, but we're focused upon something that is eternal. That is our faith, our trust, our relationship with God. 
The Lord's Supper is a picture of heaven. It points us toward our blessed unity together in the Lord's presence. That's coming. That's coming at the Lord's return. And it is a warning to those who do not partake that judgment is certain without Christ. It offers us a hint of heaven, picturing the relationship, the unity that we have in the future awaiting us, but it's also a hint of hell for those that cannot participate, that do not participate. It is a reminder of what is at stake in our unity as a congregation. Unity is not merely about making church more enjoyable. Unity is important, even critical, because it pictures Christ. The body of Christ, the church, is assembled around the body of Christ, portrayed through the bread and the wine. This morning, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And following this prayer, we will sing together. As we sing, I invite you to come. You're in Christ this morning, and you're in right relationship, fellowship with Him and with others. We invite you to come and receive these elements and return to your seat where we will take them together. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we give you thanks this morning for our hope in Christ Jesus. Grant us deep understanding and appreciation for our deliverance from sin and its judgment. As we approach your table, we pray that you may get, might make our hearts aware of attitudes, of actions, of inactions that, Lord, have fractured our fellowship with you or with others. Give us particular insight into things that threaten and harm our unity as your body. We pray this morning that you would convict and convince us to repent and reconcile by Christ's finished work and only by Christ's finished work. This we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.